Hello and welcome. You're listening into The Golden Thread with Jefferson Duval and guests. Thanks for lending your ears. May your time here plant a seed, build a bridge, soften a landing, deepen your journey within, and strengthen all your relationships. Okay, thanks for listening in. Today is Thursday, July 7th, 2022 in the Gregorian calendar. And uh, I'm really joyfully excited here today because um, I'm joined by a very dear friend and, and first guest on, on Into the Golden Thread podcast. And his name is um, Brandon Atkins. And really, it's just a delight for me to be able to uh, bring the kind of conversations that we have as friends and as colleagues in a, in a different respect um, and share that with you all. So I hope you get some value from this today. Um, a little bit about Brandon. He's been teaching psychology um, for the past 10 years. And currently he's in the last stages of gaining his PhD in psychology, focusing on cognition and instruction. And with you know all the academics you could imagine that go along with that. Brandon, to me, is one of the most uh, heart-centered and compassionate people that I know. And, um, and I get to experience that in friendship with him. Uh, however, we've also done some work together in the past, um, specifically in working with youth um, in Southern Oregon, where we, um, you know, using the platform of a, of a nonprofit called Alliance of Generations, we started a um, a youth mentoring program in an at-risk high school, high school, um, or whatever the current term is for that, you know, high schools where kids are really struggling and they're trying to just make it work for them. And, uh, that went on for a couple of years. Uh, and I think there was great learning all around. So, um, yeah, welcome Brandon. Oh, thank you so much, Jefferson. What a pleasure to be here with you. This is another beautiful evolution in our friendship and some of the things that we've gotten to share together, like you mentioned, that youth work, uh, some deep connections, great friendship. Always appreciate the insights and conversations that we bring together and that you offer. I feel like there's so much depth that happens quickly with us. So I'm really excited for this opportunity to connect with you in this way. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, let me say to listeners too, that Brandon's uh, most likely we're going to do an ongoing here. So this might be a once a month um, or there's going to be some kind of frequency with our conversations to evolve things and get deeper into, into different things that we're uh, exploring. So that's really exciting as well. Um, today, the, uh, the, the headline here, the title, the, the springboard or the seed language for this conversation is Love Bricks, um, the Brilliance of the Heart's Defense. And um, we are going to, you know, essentially walk into the waters um, of this conversation from very, um, you know, as lay people, regardless of our expertise, having, you know, just walked in the shoes of difficulty, challenge, triumph, discovery, um, when it comes to, uh, you know, going further into relationship or intimacy or even spirituality and, and what shows up there. Um, uh, when it comes to the heart and the protection 
that at least I believe naturally occurs through the conditioning, um, you know, that we encounter in our life. Do you want to say anything initially here, Brandon, or do we can start in with a question, whatever, whatever you'd like. I really like this title you came up with after our conversation about the heart and heart openings and these, these defense mechanisms, these coping mechanisms, these intentions to protect ourselves from hurt, from future suffering, from the realities and painfulnesses that are harshness that life can bring and how there's these natural tendencies to want to protect or preserve or keep from harm. So I, I really like, I literally like that title idea and this conversation. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, one, one of the first things I think of is, you know, the heart as a center of intelligence um, and how, you know, the, the mind, the way that the mind works and, uh, and, and the way that the thinking process works and where the two of them, where, where they come together, where they depart. Um, uh, and, and because I think it's a personal journey to, as some people say, make the journey, those 18 inches from, from the head to the heart. And, um, yeah, that's a, to me, there's a, there's a launching off on like, what is the intelligence? How do we recognize the intelligence that's based in the heart um, as distinguished from the mind? Um, that might be a, a place to put some feelers into. Intelligence of the mind as distinguished from the heart. Yeah, that, I think that makes sense. I often perceive the heart as a way, as a, its own way of perceiving, intuiting, feeling. Uh, connecting, experiencing, and I often look at how my own mind uh, can keep me from that at times, keep me from feeling into that space so that 18 inches can sometimes feel far away. And I think some of what we might talk about is our own deep connection to being able to navigate from that heart place. Yeah. Yeah, that I really enjoy something that I've practiced a bit in the last few years since I came across a book. Um, I believe it's called Heart Rhythm Meditation um, by I'm not going to remember. I'll put it in the show notes. But but it was a beautiful, um, you know, by no means was it the first time of you know connecting with my heart intelligence. But it was practices and simple meditations where um, the focus was to literally physically, you know, take your attention and put it literally on the heart beating. And that was really all, all it was. And I mean, at least the, the, the initial parts of the practices and just that alone for me granted me this experience of reunion grief where, you know, there's really no language for what the feeling was and what the, the, the sort of exaltation was, but the best I could do would say this reunion grief for this dear old friend who'd been there all along, you know, you know, doing this, you know, incredible work of, you know, moving energy in my system and blood. And, uh, um, and, and so there, I was, you know, it was, it, there was tears. I was weeping just to actually be like, Oh, I made contact. I mean, I made contact with this, the literal organ you could say, but it was a different kind of aliveness. It was like a recognition of my a recognition, recognition, 
whatever that word is, of my own aliveness through the the intelligence of my heart or like meeting my heart. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So this experience kind of gave you some insight into your own personal experience or can you share more about what your yeah, it, it well, it gave it an anchor point. You know, the, I mean, I've I've found through a good part of my, you know, uh, later years in life that what what I just you know the the word gr- you know grief and grieving are a very um, rich part of my spiritual experience, and when I say grieving, I don't mean some emotion that we would call grief. For me, um, grieving is like a practice and a process um, by which any emotion can arise, uh, as well as understanding and, um, or but even madness can arise within the process of grieving, joy, um, exaltation, um, praise. Um, but through that process, something something digests. I get to digest experience to um, a, a greater a greater degree. And from this experience of that reunion grief, let's say, again, it was like this anchor point of like, oh, that is a place that I can go. There's a place that I have to go inside myself. And it is literally the physical, it's putting my attention literally on the area of my heart, which then naturally emanates into, you know, feeling like blood course through my veins or, or moving, moving the attention to different parts of the body and feeling the blood in, and the heartbeat in different parts of the body. Yeah, I see. Okay. <clears throat> so this grieving process versus an emotion of grieving, that makes a lot of sense. And there's some things you brought up. I uh, appreciate you sharing that. Uh, there's some, some real beautiful things in there and real life experience that sounds informative. There's some interesting things that come up in that that I'm curious to kind of explore with you. Part of that is this idea about where we place our attention and how we place our attention and the what might come with the ways in which we place our intention in certain ways, meaning there's often a lot added either from our you know conditioned experience or the, the mind's itself or you know what I often talk about is uh, egoic mechanisms these mechanisms that are operating automatically that could come with where we place our attention so there's some interesting things in that for me that I would enjoy exploring with you a little more Uh, yeah yeah any any particular launching off point or any uh, whether that be a an experience that matches up or anything specific from what I shared well, I, I think before I go into that, I, I just want to make sure I acknowledge kind of what you're sharing about this grieving process and how there's this, there's a lot in, you know, talking about it as a process and these various emotions uh, and that it sounds like, I, I, you know, I'm curious, have curiosity still about, you know, I could see how some of that could be transformative, but also some of that's part of just kind of natural experience and uh, I, I could see the value in it. I, I feel like there's something more for me to learn and understand about how you're talking about it as a process. Uh, and so I, I feel like I didn't want to let that go before we moved on to something else. And just in case, you know, 
feel like there's an opportunity for me to gain some insight from what you're sharing here. Uh, and that could be because of my own different, you know, personal experience around um, trying to face death at a very young age, like eight year old trying to face the death of my parents and everybody around me and, and, and how that's kind of changed my experience. So maybe I kind of naturally did that myself. And, and so maybe it's, it's there, but elusive in my current consciousness. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, that's, that helps a lot. The, I mean, I have to, I'm going to assume subjectivity, even though I have a hunch about commonality through experience of grieving. I mean, I've, I mean, it's not, uh, I'm not going to withhold that I've explored grieving in the past through, you know, I, I, I studied with Maladoma Somme, um, a West African elder who passed away. Um, I think it was the end of last year. Oh yeah. And, um, um, and then also got into the work of Martin Prechtel, who's got a, a really wonderful uh, book. And I believe there's a, um, a YouTube or a, a recording out of it as well, which is called Grief and Praise. So uh, I definitely had influence from, you know, indigenous peoples around in, in terms of exploring it for myself. But nonetheless, everything for me is cultivated in the practice therein and the experiencing therein. So I think, I think one thing I'd say is that, you know, grieving to me has to do with the recognition of loss um, in a way that is meeting it directly, but in a sacred way. And, you know, the, you know, like you went right to some, some, you know, heavier things talking about when you were very young, like thinking about the death of people that you love. Um, and so, yes, it, like gr grieving for me, you know, there's, there's processes that happen after loss has occurred, but grieving as a practice can also occur before. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, it's in a way, it's, it's kind of, as I'm, as I'm thinking here, just out, out loud, it's, if we kind of cross over into non-dual territory for a moment and say that, you know, is lo if loss is only possible to the degree of attachment there is, then there might be something in that respect, right? That, that is, sure. it's a question, like, is grieving only possible to the degree that there's attachment? Um, mm. But that said, um, you know, the, if I think about that experience with my heart, right, I don't, know that I had attachment to something. It's almost like I was in ignorance. I was, I, yeah, well, I was in just kind of an utter ignorance of something that was so alive in me, literally, <laughs> or keeping yeah. me alive, literally. And to meet it with a certain frequency or, or quality of, of, of awareness or consciousness, it, it was almost like, um, you know, you know, seeing God, you know, seeing God in myself, I'll, I'll, I'll put it into those kinds of terms, sure. so you're just like floored, and then, you know, instantly weeping because of the beauty of that, of that uh, recognition, and along with the recognition of, whoa, a lot of, you know, 30 some years has passed, or 40 some years has passed since I made this kind of recognition. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's some, 
yeah, there, again, yeah, there's so many interesting pieces to kind of pull apart here or unpack. Part of it's that infusion of that consciousness you were talking about on the experience. And yet there's the, the, the automatic operations of, of our human experience that are still experiencing the struggle, uh, the subtle attachments, whether conscious or unconscious, or the, the challenges that come with being a human that, that has this great care for others and, and, and the loss, and it could be the loss you know, of, of environment, not just other humans and, and other factors, and how we're still gonna be affected by those things, even uh, though there's this you know, other conversation about the consciousness that can infuse the moment that creates less attachment. Mm -hmm. And so how, so it's kind of, uh, you know, I kind of wanna uh, navigate that dialogue in a, in a way that, that hopefully can bring more clarity of the challenge, those challenges that we're speaking to uh, uh, that of, of that, we haven't really put words to what that, you know, consciousness is that you mentioned about, you know, you could use the word God or source or something like that. And that the challenges of our own personal human subjective experience that has an automatic tendency to form attachments, mm -hmm. not thinking of that as positive or negative, good or bad, but a natural tendency to do so. And so there's, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation to navigate and can go multiple directions there. You know, I wonder, I wonder if we, I wonder if we just kind of infuse something that is, you know, good to sort of let the plate spin and kind of move to maybe some like psychological or conditioning based aspects and let that and let that come back and meet these because we kind of went to into some depths really quick. I wonder yeah. if, you know, just the title itself, right? The Love Bricks and the Brilliance of the Heart's Defense. Um, I mean, I can, idea. I can, that, does that work for you? That's great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, when I think about, let's, my childhood and the conditions and how I responded to the conditions, um, you know, I, there's this, there's this event that I experienced when I was four or five that I, you know, I remember through adult eyes, of course, like I, the, the, the gestalt of it, I remember, but in terms of how I describe it is through adult eyes, but, and it was when uh, my dad uh, got me a Philadelphia Eagles jacket. When, have, I don't have I shared this one with you? Yeah, I totally yeah. remember this, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I grew up outside of West Philadelphia and so I'm really small, you know, like five years old and my dad gets me this Philadelphia Eagles jacket you know, nice white leather sleeves with the green felt down the whatever. And, you know, I didn't really care because I was five, you know, I mean, play and just being outside was more important to me or being, being in the presence of my parents um, uh, individually, that is. Um, so I, he gives me the jacket. I go up to the park to play at the top of the street, Huey Park. And, um, and I come back later in the day and I don't have the coat. My dad's, my dad's a big guy. He's like six, three. And you know, you got to come up this really small hill to the front yard. So he looks even bigger. Where's your coat? Where's your coat? Oh no. And so I run up to the park and the coat's gone. Somebody stole it. Oh. And, uh, and so I, you know, I come home and I remember like, I didn't no words. Didn't, I don't know if any words were exchanged, but I remember how it felt to be on the receiving end of, 
you know, his, you know, disgust, his like disbelief and disgust for, you know, how that could have happened and how I could have done that, I guess you could say. And you're five, right? Yeah, I'm five years old. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so is apparently so is he in this moment. But um <laughs> uh, but uh and and so again, now when I if I put on sort of the adult glasses where I had this, you know, kind of epiphany uh of the situation, it was that in that moment, right? Somehow in those moments, something in me uh, kind of came alive and said, um, in its own probably nonverbal way, uh, this feels so horrific um, that I'm that I'm going to make it so that I never have to feel it in this way again. Yeah, you know, like we could say it, it was like love brick number three or something. You know, it was like an early love brick uh, in terms of the walls around the heart. Yeah, and and so the way I kind of perceive it is that. I internalize the mechanism, right? If if an out if an outer person could make me feel that way in that moment, right? If I could then become the arbiter of that punishment from the inside, then it, I would never have to experience that same frequency of it of pain from the outside again. Makes sense, yeah. And, and now that doesn't mean that that no, that's unconscious, of course, right? That's that's unconscious. That's <laughs> And so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't buffer me from more pain. It actually just, um, it allows me to adapt. It allows me to survive better in the environment with this grown child, parent, um, and and just navigate life better. So that I mean, that story to me is a is a is a decent one for the love brick, you know. Yeah, and how early these mechanisms mm -hmm. kick in and our conscious adult consciousness can reflect and kind of understand it a little bit more and see how that's taking place. And therefore, if it's happening at such a young age, it's going to continue those, those patterns and conditioning happen so young that they'll continue along unless we, you know, bring some type of consciousness or awareness to it that might uh, change it, and I'm not suggesting it needs to be changed, but that there might be some desire to do so as an adult. And so it's that story speaks to just how easily just and we're talking about one instance and how many could happen in a day, let alone over years, mm -hmm. and how we respond to those situations with those kind of protective mechanisms. Like, oh, I don't, I don't like that. I don't want that. I don't want to feel that way. What can I do? Usually un unconsciously that's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But what can I do to, yeah, like you said, keep from having that happen again? I mean, that's kind of the, the ge one general overarching way of looking at these mechanisms is, I don't like that. That doesn't feel good. I don't want to experience that again. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I appreciate you saying that. And, for for instances like this when we're so young especially and and the level of you know being like a sponge an unconscious sponge i i use an assumption that 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 strategy that mechanism that i don't want to feel this way that that that's a loving gesture that, that that's like that it actually comes from love yeah right right so and and yeah and in that sense i mean i don't know if i can say that that connects to the heart but it you know it feels that way that the, the heart intelligence 
would be like the, the biggest beacon of love, be the biggest uh, orifice or organ organ that centers itself in and from love. Yeah, I think that makes sense as far as uh, the, the way in which feelings are connected to the heart and often directed by what the mind is thinking, mm -hmm. consciously or unconsciously, mm -hmm. and how that those feelings, while often directed by the mind, maybe even largely, but that it's also experienced, not just as a thought, but a feeling in the body. And often I think the heart has a lot to do with that perception of that experience mm. yeah I, I mean right now I, my my sort of my thinking is moving to this physicality aspect again I mean you know the the example that I just gave of course is um, you know to, to a lot of people relative to their traumas and experiences in childhood that's like a cakewalk and I don't I'm not one I'm not an advocate for comparing suffering because I don't think it yields fruit really generally speaking, but, um, but there are reactions to things like this that happen that can affect a person's um, associative state, let's say, right? Where, like where, where the, the predominance of their consciousness actually dislocates, whether that's from cumulative um, incidences, abuse, things like that. Um, um, or, you know, and, and again, that's a relative and subjective thing. I, I will not, I wouldn't claim to know what is the real cause of that. But I think of that also because of, again, this experience that I had with the, the meditation where the whole practice was attention and concentration on the physical, uh, my physical heart uh, itself. And if, if there are love bricks that are powerful enough to, <laughs> Um, you know, essentially dislocate a person's locus of being or, or whatever you want to call it so that they're, they live in a general dissociated state. Oh man, like getting, yeah. getting a place of heart access becomes a whole, or does it, does it become a whole different, you know, process? Yeah, I think that definitely brings up a lot of uh, challenges that, that many are, are, if not most uh, are dealing with in some way that, that just, disassociated or disconnected or that those walls and barriers that are uh, in a sense kind of protecting feeling a certain way but I could say the heart from hurting or suffering and that in those building of those bricks and those those mechanisms that are defending that from that hurt or ache or uh, the situation happening again that felt so terrible, that then it becomes challenging to potentially to feel those, um, the depths of what the heart's boundlessness can be. I, I kind of, you know, said that without explaining what I mean by boundlessness, but that, 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 that there can be a, a guardedness that an understandable protective guardedness that also makes it harder to access and feel that mm. connection yes. you know which is hard for me not to think of maybe some greater depths of i guess what some call spiritual or you know greater awakening conscious experiences 
that can happen with with heart open openings versus constricting yeah is is this an is this maybe this is an appropriate place is is there anything from your early years in terms of access or like whether it's that grieving that you were doing at a young age or experiences again regardless of whether it's just heart based is there anything relevant there that would it's, it's a good time to that could feed into this i was thinking about your story and trying to look more into my eight-year-old self and questioning why why did i try and why was i intentionally trying to process the death of my parents and in a way that felt like acceptance as an eight-year-old i don't quite understand how why I was doing that. I, I think some of the work that we've done in youth mentoring and understanding certain developmental stages, it helps me to understand that you know, death is, is, it can be talked about like we did at some of those rites of passage weekends where you know, eight to 12 year olds can you know, have great depth of conversation. So I know developmentally it, it can be explained, but why was I doing that. And my guess is, is something about my consciousness that at that time realized that reality of their inevitable death. And so I think that brought me to this conscious, maybe as conscious as my eight-year-old self could be, to try and imagine it in a way that felt like accepting and positive and I, I don't even know why I was doing that in, in that way but I know that I was and it's kind of changed the trajectory of my life so I guess the part that relates to where we're you know kind of your story and what we're talking about is there was a mechanism there that didn't you know that wanted me to be okay with it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that wanted to have some acceptance about it that wanted to feel good about it and it, you know, Freud never talked about those definition, uh, those defense mechanisms as negative. They were never perceived as some negative things. I think in today's uh, everyday, I'm generalizing society and culture, it, they tend to be perceived as, oh, that's such a bad thing, denial, projection, and, you know, those for sure cannot feel good to be projected on. But when not perceived as a negative thing, it's just kind of, okay, this is a way of coping and dealing. And I could kind of see how, even though it kind of changed the trajectory of my life in a less, it was almost like removing bricks, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it was still a, a, a mechanism to, for how we could feel and the challenges of feeling that great suffering. So there's a lot there, especially with our, I feel like in general, again, our culture in, in the U.S. not talking about death very much. Mm -hmm. So um, I feel like a little outside of the norm in that way. But uh, there's definitely some interesting things that just kind of came from us already talking about this, seeing that as a useful mechanism to try and face those realities. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really exquisite. I mean, I, something that popped in as you were sharing it too, it's, it's like living into a capacity. Um, 
you know, mm. and maybe we could say that's because because there was no obstacle present or to what to whatever degree there was an obstacle present, you had the skill and capacity to to move past it. And I think of like when I think of the question why, I mean, the answer that I mean that, that pops in, you know, just almost with a joyful uh, tone is like, because you could. Oh, right. You know, yeah. like, because sure. you could, you know, it's like, it's like if there's a capacity that's latent and there's no resistance presenting itself or, or, or if the capacity to overcome it's there, it's like climb that wall, you know, dig that hole, you know, you know, dig under the wall, whatever it is, or, or just take that step across that threshold um, yeah. or, or those many steps. And to right. me, I really, in you sharing it this time, because you've shared not, maybe not this much detail, but is that there's this joy in that there's this, there's a, there's a lot of joy that I can perceive in um, like, I'm glad that you had that experience. I'm glad that you got to have that experience then and not as some remedial, um, you know, post facto processing. Like that's really, it's, it's like, yeah. it's, it brings hope into my heart, right. Of, or, or it adds to compassion um, because I mean, that's the kind of future world I'm, I'm seeking to help seed and be a part of where there are less, I mean, I, I don't think it's about ending or ending suffering altogether. Cause I don't know that this realm would serve, would serve. I think that this realm kind of serves through suffering in a certain way, you know, that's, oh, a, yeah. that's a whole nother thing, but um, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a really, there's a lot of joy in, in that. And, and I know that there's been complexity for you in, you know, bearing that capacity when a lot of people around you, probably most, if not all, weren't sharing that you couldn't go compare notes with your buds yeah and even further i even as i'm sharing now i feel hesitancy in myself to even share about that knowing that you know that hasn't been a typical experience for most and that great suffering has happened and even you know those close to me so many uh, have you know continually expressed the the depths of their 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 challenges and the 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 deep suffering and pain and hurt from uh, loss and death. And, and so, you know, there's even a, there's all, there's long been a hesitancy for me to even share those, that type of experience, Mm. Um, knowing that it can have some impact on those that, you know, have have had much more challenge and, and, and feeling grief and their own ways of grieving processes. Mm. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, it's, it's, I have no experience that I can saddle up next to you on that with. And I, but I just, my senses is that I hope that you have more and more experiences that can close the gap of any separation that it might feed because to me, it's like, it's a capacity that you walked into. And I guess a simple way to say it is that I don't think you're missing out on suffering to not have suffered um, in that way. Yeah. In, in fact, interestingly, by 17, I started seeking out the suffering and trying uh, to, to face it over and over again. These, you know, old videos like Faces of Death. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And 
and continually in some of the reality TV shows that I watch and the struggles, it's, it's like I'm constantly seeking it out to kind of lean into it and face it, you know, and I know that's not the typical MO because I realized, you know, as I got older, it wasn't a typical experience yet, you know, feeling that great suffering is just as much a part of my experience. I think, well, sometimes I think about this often, I guess, because of how it came up in relation to others that um, there's been these some of these skills and tools that have made it easier to navigate some of those things, knowing a lot of you know people close to me um, feel more challenged in, in in that suffering, and so maybe that's what guides some of the work that I want to do with others is kind of knowing and seeing that. Um, while I know there's a bunch of different directions we could go here, I was thinking about when I was 17 and I started to recognize these, these coping mechanisms coming in. Started to recognize something like denial, like, ooh, that doesn't feel good. Maybe I'll go this other direction and, and try and either avoid or not feel it. But then something in me was like, mm, I don't know if that's what I want to do. I don't know if that's my path here. Again, I don't understand where that came from, but, um, you know, so I started to kind of pick up on these mechanisms in myself that were protective and uh, not wanting to get hurt, like in a relationship I was in in high school and some of these other situations. So I, I you know, kind of coming back to those defense mechanisms as coping those, those, those boundaries and barriers, I, um, I, 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 I think what happened is as I started to realize some of those things and I started to share them, I started to get interesting reactions from people from like 17 to 20, where it, it me talking about it brought up the, the grieving and suffering in others. And I think slowly through my 20s, I, I did start to do my own protective mechanisms and suppress some of those natural young processes that were kind of undoing the bricks. Again, not thinking the bricks are negative or bad, but seem to be on that path. And by the time I was 30, after I started meditating every day, for an hour or two a day, I ended up being eight years straight. But two years into that, I started to realize I that I had created this coping mechanism of not sharing because of the negative impact and feedback I got from others, because it seemed to bring up their suffering. Maybe, maybe they were comparing or something um, and feeling less, or they were, um, you know, just me talking about my own processes brought up theirs and sometimes that didn't feel good. And so I would slowly share less and less and less mm. through my twenties. And then by the time I started, it's like, I got, I got to start heading the other direction again, because that is not the direction that I seem to have started out on at a young age. And so I spent, I feel like a lot of my thirties undoing a lot of that. Um, and I think you and I have had conversations where 
like, oh, it's nice to hear you share that because sometimes I don't. And I even mentioned my tendency to not want to share some of my experience knowing the impact it would have. So it's still kind of there. So that's my own example of a, some clear protective mm -hmm. mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And, and it's maybe my own idea of protecting others, but still, I think that's protecting how it makes me feel when I see how I, you know, I can maybe take responsibility for how it might make others feel. So a little bit of a run there, but yeah. No, that's beautiful. Um, it really, it, 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 it inspires some things here. I mean, thanks for just share. Thanks for sharing it with such specific specificity too, in terms of like the tracking it throughout the years and the, and the impact, right? Like um, reacting to the impact of your genuine experience. Cause that's kind of how I hear it. It's like your gen, your authentic experience of things becomes uh, or is perceived as unwelcome because of the, the response that it, a reaction that it elicits in others. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the things that I wanted to say this earlier, but this is a perfect time to say it is that there's something, I think it should be spoken here that there is, the context here is relationship, you know, that, you know, it, you know, hearts in relationship to one another, let's say, you know, and yeah, because it sure as heck seems to me that intimacy is a, in a lot of ways, a, um, a lessening of the defenses with another person uh, so that a certain deeper closeness can be experienced. And so mm -hmm. it's, um, it's fascinating and tragic at the same time, how, with both of our examples, different kind of different playouts, uh, where you might say to use one sort of one framing is that my false self started forming early in certain in reaction to events, and here here your your real self was like coming through, it's like pulsating through, but then a little bit later in life, it's almost like a little bit later maybe than most in reaction to most people, yeah. what we might call the false aspects of yourself start forming because that real self has no place to land. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, the, um, yeah, I mean, there's a spirit of this conversation for me that is that I want to speak to, you know, that is for me about compassion. And I, I to me, sharing it with you kind of goes without saying you, you, kind of, to me, you emanate compassion, but um, just even to have this conversation and to share it with the world is, you know, that my, my unspoken intention up until this point was about deepening compassion. And, and I mean that both in the, to be able to be with suffering greater, to, to, to expand the skill of being able to be with suffering, but also to be with um, what's real, you know, to be able to be with what's real. Yeah. Sometimes I think certain insights to the nature of reality, you can't turn back from, meaning you have certain insights about what's real. You can't, you know, if, if it's deeply experienced, you can't really turn back from that insight about reality. Mm. I know I'm not saying anything specific here, but in speaking generally, uh, so kind of makes sense what you're saying well you know no that that's that uh, to me that there is a i will often 
I mean, I, I've lived this way for years myself, but I also posit to people that I work with um, and even friends, if, if, if there's room for it and it's welcome naturally arising, that the invitation to look at the things that have been carried with the greatest um, heaviness or, in, or the things that a person dislikes about themselves to be put into this frame of what if those things are love bricks, right? And I, I mean, of course, I don't use that language, but um, sure. you know that those that what if that mechanism was born out of love to protect something sacred? Yeah. And there are times when that insight for a person can change everything because it moves to 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 contemplate that invites a person into greater acceptance rather than the rather than the energy that it takes to keep something at bay, right? It takes a lot of energy to hold something yeah, away. Definitely. So, I mean, the, the, to your point about, you know, an insight that you can't go back from, I mean, if, again, if it tests as true for the person, then absolutely. If, and to me, I'm all about the testing, you know, all about the testing. Yeah. 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 Lots of challenging ourselves. I hear you challenge yourself to kind of, test the test your own boundaries test those own like reality of those bricks and their usefulness and it seems like this idea of acceptance is part of maybe what we're saying when we say they're not good or bad innately of uh, in and of themselves those mechanisms those bricks mm. Well, well, it's almost as though, I, I mean, I've, I don't, I've never said this before, but it's almost as though acceptance is a heart mediated, you know, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You could sure. right. Well, I've, I heard somebody ahead. say once that, um, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll encounter different people and teachers saying, um, you know, cultivate acceptance. And so you have people like, you know, with their mind doing this, like, okay, I accept that about myself. And I accept and, and I don't know who this guy was, but somebody shared the, where his whole approach of, of authentic acceptance was much more, it had the feeling of much more of, it's okay. It's yeah. okay. You know, and, and that, if you, you know, you feel, you feel that it's okay. That's really not a, it's, it's less conceptual. Right. It's, 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 it's more, it's, it's got allowance in its tone and its frequency rather than a concept. Oh, I have to accept that. Yeah, we were both going the same place about uh -huh. the mind in that way. Absolutely. And how the the navigating from that conceptual mind trying to rationalize or justify, which are mechanisms, right? Rationalizing, justifying, um, understandable mechanisms, yet it seems that the greater acceptance we were just speaking to that that bounds from the heart is what can happen when i'm not trying to rationalize or justify or or explain through my mind it's almost what happens when there's less of that mind and so that's you know we could could explore that or we could go back to this you know where we place our attention and what kind of could come with with that or uh yeah, yeah well, well let's blend them let's um yeah 
I mean, and I, I mean, this is, I'm out on some thin branches for myself here and I'm okay with that, but um, like, what is attention? You know, like what it, what is attention and is, is attention, is it sourced in mind? You know, that's kind of where I started to go there. Like if we go, wait, what is the attention that can be placed? I don't know if you can. It's tough for me and I'm studying psychology in my PhD program right now. And, and, you know, the attentional biases are coming up and in this cognitive learning classes or cognition and instruction classes. So, you know, part of my association of the word attention is connected to this research on the way the um, brain states and, and physiology, I would say, biology, physiology, and, and neurology, you know, how those are connecting to uh, create attention. I mean, that's, you know, that for sure comes up for me uh, when thinking about this, yet my everyday language probably talking to you would be more about uh, conscious awareness and this ability to place my attention in different ways or in different places and that the mind has this ability to recognize that there are, when I'm placing my attention, and I'm, I'm likely adding things, you know, I would, I tend to call it my ego, but how am I not thinking of it, the ego ever as negative or positive, but that just what it does is that it wants, you know, has opinions, wants to feel a certain way, wants to assert and control. And so when I'm placing my attention, is there some subtle control that's coming with that placing of attention that is more egoic? Uh, and so it seems like something about my conscious awareness can be aware of that, be aware that there's this like pushing or trying to force or like, try, you know, trying to push my attention to my heart. And then it's like, what am, you know, how, so how can I, for me, the question usually come, becomes, how can I place my attention in different places with, without trying to make it positive or negative, good or bad, right or wrong, and just noticing when there's that subtleness of, oh, you know, my stomach hurts, I'm going to try and infuse positive feeling or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying that's negative or bad, I just have had experiences where it seems to be best if for example, my stomach is hurting to not try and do anything. I call it getting out of my own way, but still a subtleness of placing my attention in that area that allows it to heal more quickly or effectively. And I, and I don't know how much of what I just said makes sense or not, but I, that's what I came up for me around attention. Yeah, no, no. I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's all, there's a building happening here where, you know, we're, we're sort of like putting things in piles to, uh, to deepen the conversation here. And that, to me, that did that for sure. Um, it led me to the, you know, just the contemplation of could attention be called, could attention be called as a process, um, the will mediating and directing conscious awareness. Now, Right. We, we, to your point or to some of what you were saying, we could still say what, what's directing the will or like from where is that will coming? Is it coming out of an egoic attachment based relating to life or is it coming from, uh, you know, a meta observer uh, or something, you know, sure. yeah. I'm, I'm getting beyond my terms here, but um, 
and then from from there, I, I kind of went to this place of when when I think about the stomach metaphor or the stomach situation, yeah, you know, recognition seems to require attention, right? Right. Just yeah. basic recognition will require attention uh, to some level. And then I went, then I kind of moved into this, like a call and response mechanism. And here's what I mean. The, the call being, you know, maybe the call is the pain. The, that's okay. the initial call. The response is attention. Yeah. Uh, the next call could be more pain, maybe increased pain, let's say, because the attention's there. Yeah. And then it's I'm, I'm, what I guess what I'm saying here is that this is for anybody listening, like if get creative with this and playful with this in your own mind of like what happens in the call and response and what can, could, could the next response be, oh, do you, you know, wow, um, a welcome. I mean, that could be the response. Welcome pain. Wow. Okay. I, I'm not going to fight this. I'm going to welcome this. Whoa. Huh. Right. And then. Yeah maybe uh, the next call is you get some thought, right? Some thought floods in to allowing that pain to be welcome there. Um, and yeah. anyway, that's kind of where, that's how I spiraled into something when, you know, in terms of how does, you know, the, of course the question was, what is attention? And maybe we can at least agree to some extent that there is a willful moving of awareness and be okay with not knowing if it's in a hundred percent health or, you know, distortion. I don't know. What do you think? I think it's hard to know, hard for me to know all the things I'm adding to uh, that willful attention toward whatever, whatever it's directing toward. And that sometimes in awareness, I can catch it and try and pull back from that. Uh, but beyond that, I really like what you were saying about call and response. There seems to be these automatic reactions that are happening, sometimes talked about as conditioning or the, the operations of the mind or, or you know, sometimes this default mode network happening. Mm. And so that have you know, especially studying psychology, knowledge of increasing over time, knowledge of those things playing out automatically as automatic reactions. Yet we're talking about through awareness uh, that there's, you know, kind of noticing the responses and, and there, that there's different directions those responses could go. Because mm -hmm. it for sure could be that I feel the pain in my stomach, my, <clears throat> excuse me, feel the pain in my stomach, and then I immediately think, oh, I don't like that. And then I feel the emotion of not liking that. Mm -hmm. and it just kind of keeps going down whatever direction we take it. I don't know if it's all conscious intentional, mm -hmm. not trying to apply that. So I think there's value in talking about it the way you did. And there's a side of me that can't help but want to speak to the bringing awareness to it, right? But there's also just the reality of like um, the, the reactions that are happening and the responses that we go with. And yeah, is there acceptance about that too? Meaning 
meaning I can notice this conditioning playing out and I can notice that I just like said, I don't like that feeling. And now I'm feeling sometimes the second arrow of not liking it. Can I accept that too? Um, but maybe I don't need to go that direction. I, maybe that's just a tendency of me being in the classroom so much that I have a tendency to want to do that. Yeah, yeah. No, I like I like the, what you're saying there too, in terms of the, you know, just saying that you can't know all the things that are being contributed. That I mean, just even starting there, right. um, I thought of a counterpoint to the call and response. You know, that might be worthwhile for people who are you know exploring inside themselves with their own reactions, which would be like, notice, see if you could notice how a call and response as a, as a, um, as a frame of relation, as a frame of relating, you know, and think about like songs that are call and response, you know, like the, you know, I think that's a great way to kind of get into the spirit of it. The, you know, a lot of songs, a, a lot of the African, you know, music that I've studied over the years is almost all the songs are call and response. The, the drumming patterns themselves are call and response. Uh -huh. And I, the, so the counterpoint that came up to that was alarm and react. <laughs> it was like, you know, there's like an alarm that goes off and then there's just boom reaction. Yeah. And I think that when I, when I kind of go into that, there's a, there's a lack of space for, for lack of a better word, there's a lack of um, pause. There's a lack of relatability to what's happening. Whereas the call and response has this spaciousness or like, Oh, what, what, what's, Oh, well, that was the call. How, how ought I respond? Right. Versus alarm. Like, I don't, like you said, I don't like that. And then now the feelings of what happens from that thinking of, I don't like that start to snowball. Yeah. The fear of, oh no, what's going on in my stomach? I'm going to, there's a problem here, you know, and, and, and the tendency to, to go to worst case scenario mm -hmm. as a defense mechanism, as a protective mechanism, as a, you know, checking in on on the realities of things that can lead to our demise and uh for the promotion of survival mm -hmm. i think those those worst case scenarios and so it, I, those those worst case scenarios can come up and i can notice them and then do they perpetuate from there once I notice them? Do, do I live in that fear and then the emotions and feelings that come from that? Mm. Yeah, you, you just brought, I mean, I don't think we've even, I don't know if that word's been spoken here in this conversation yet of, of fear. Um, oh, right. Yeah. I don't, you know, you, and it, you brought it in. And so, yeah, it's like, oh, right. Um, you know, to what degree is is that a driving force in perpetuating the necessity of building and adding the love bricks, um, right? right. To, to mediate that experience of fear, which, you know, uh, you know, of course, unconsciously perhaps keeps it stuck in place, um, you know, or it keeps it at bay yet, yet in a stasis, you know, somehow at the same time. Yeah, that fear seems to me to be largely a, a protective mechanism. And so we can connect that to the protecting the feeling of the heart. It doesn't have to be this overarching need for survival yet. It, you know, so, so I have curiosity maybe even, you know, now around, you know, thinking about this conversation and fear 
that seems to be driven by this mechanism for survival. So we're, we're noticing the negative potential harms, dangers, and remembering them to perpetuate our survival. And so I, that's why I don't think of them as negative and or bad or harmful. Uh, yet I know I don't like living and feeling that. And so I'm always trying to, so maybe that's the connection right there. I don't like feeling that. And so then that's my protective mechanism of the heart space is that because I don't want to live and feel that fear all the time, don't want it to control me. I, I'm trying, you know, these mechanisms come into place for that, mm-hmm. for that protection of the hurt that the heart feels from, or just, I mean, I could generalize it as negative feelings, but then it, it, it could be much more, you know, the, those fears aren't just about survival. It's often about fear of, you know, and loss, threat of loss, loss of a relationship, loss of a connection, loss of, of, of feeling that love with and connection with someone. And so then there's all those protective mechanisms against that, you know, that feeling of hurt. And I think the challenges that we all face can, can face is that when we have been, once we've felt that hurt, it's, it becomes a stronger mechanism that's a fear of feeling that deep hurt again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, that seems to be like a building fundamental, like a fundamental building block of the protection process. And that's completely reasonable that we can, you know, that we can, I mean, you can take that. You can go biological with that. Like you can go a lot, you know, you can go to biological causes. You can go to, you can go to different causal grounds for that, but it's kind of like they all work to me because it, it, it just makes sense is that you would not want to be hurt in the future. Right. Right. It's like, it's, it's a very natural process to not want to get hurt in the future. Yeah. Um, Yes. That's a, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of a, a person that I know in my life who seems to only know a certain identity in themselves when they can help others. Ah, sure. And so it's almost like the way that I, you know, and conversationally say it is that they're, they, they're constantly rushing in with an open heart to be of service, but doing it with people who can't, you know, who can't even really receive it, who can't even meet, this person there. And so a suffering, it's almost like a, a suffering being experienced from a wound that won't close because the person keeps bringing the openness of heart to people who can't receive it. It can't meet it. And, and then kind of like a, a ensuing, like, am I frigging nuts here? Am I, am I nuts? I keep, you know. So maybe a little clarity on my part uh, in this example, that there's this tendency, um, you're reminded of this person's tendency to try and, um, maybe there's some inherent assumption on my part that they're wanting to, they, they feel more open and connected by navigating from that place of, what would you say, supporting or helping others uh i don't want to 
Yeah, that, no, yeah, I need to clarify that. So it's like, I'm being very, uh, you know, I'm, I'm obfuscating this because the person may listen to this, but it's like, a, it's like a tendency to want to rush in and help others and right. to bring and use um, and welcome vulnerability in the process of doing that. Yeah, vulnerability, there we go. There's a word I want to get to at some point too, yeah. And so, however, the people that they are bringing it to you know, it's like going to Home Depot to get a gallon of milk. You know, it's like, um, you know, the, 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 the people that it's being brought to have, don't have the, the, the availability or the capacity to allow that to help them, to allow that to help them. Yeah. So, right, here's this person who's accessing, and I'm going to say this is like a relative vulnerability, right? It's not, obviously, something's off here. Something is, is distorted that is not clear yet for this person, but that I just, I just thought of it as an example where it's not like your typical being defended and having a wall up protection as much as continually going back to a source that does not reciprocate that vulnerability. Uh, just to give it just an example of, I guess I say this too, I'm thinking of this, Brandon, because I tend to relate to um, people and the you know individuals and individuation as a very sacred aspect, and that I don't know if that can live harmoniously alongside of uh, of a scientific universal architecture of humanity, um, or I don't know how, where that comes into that. I don't know how to speak to them. Maybe you can help me speak to them together. But that that popped up because it was an example of a different. I mean, even your, I mean, but I guess that's even true with your and mine, like your experience when you were eight versus mine when I'm five. And yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know if that made sense, but. So maybe I can try and push this a little more to kind of, kind of make, help me understand and make sense uh, that, that, you know, just that you're bringing us up as an example, not to like focus on somebody else, but just that part of our human experience is that there can be this um, way in which these mechanisms manifest where somebody's, um, you know, ourself or somebody is um, kind of trying to, uh, maybe the mechanism is that as a protection against feeling disconnected, trying to connect with people, but kind of pushing that uh, need to connect with people, but not necessarily meeting others where they're at, but that's kind of part of the, the mechanism is that it's like, I, I'm, I'm gonna keep pushing this and this vulnerability and trying to get you be vulnerable whether you want to or not, maybe, I don't know if that's further but than, than your example, but, uh, and, that, and that, that that itself is, somebody's mechanistic way of trying to stay connected to their heart. Mm. But there's also some acknowledgement that it's not fully connected to it. Not, not that there is a fully connect. I don't know what that means actually, yeah. but that, that there's, uh, there's also um, maybe some way in which, I don't know, you didn't say off-putting to others, but uh I don't know what to go from there about that because I don't, there's no, there's no judgment about that. There's just trying to understand these mechanisms of protecting. Power. 
No, I think you really helped it there by saying, uh, with by talking about the, um, you know, bringing that vulnerability and it not being, I mean, come on, I guess we, you and I probably have, have experienced this in, in certain, you know, men's circles, let's say where, you know, you know, if, if a person has a, not to put it into scale, but like if a person has a greater access to vulnerability and is asking a question of, or trying to invite another into that kind of uh, relating with themselves and relating in conversation, the heart defense, that's a place where the, the defenses can kick in and be like, uh-uh, like, you know, it's just like, yeah, not going there. And I mean, think about youth, right? Think about youth. You know, there, there, there was lots of experiences that Brandon and I got to have of, you know, what not to do. And, um, you know, <laughs> you know, we learned that, or I learned that, um, you know, being proactive with sharing your life experience and story was helpful with cert with a certain um, part of the pop certain bunch of, of youth because the trust that can come through them seeing what you've been through versus hey what do you want to talk about or you know hey do you want to talk about the the tough time that you had and it's um, right. so the, to me there's an example of that even I guess that I uh, have have been a part of at times where it's like well I I can, I, I can go vulnerable. I have, have you want to go vulnerable, you know? And it's like, uh, what, like, who the hell are yeah. you? You know? Yeah. yeah. Asking somebody to be vulnerable, uh, versus, you know, when they're like, they, they want to be, are they saying they want to be, are we we're pushing at the agenda or something, uh, versus modeling what it looks and feels and sounds like to be vulnerable ourselves, and how that tends to create a connection, that, uh, well, I mean, from the work that we were doing, especially um, in some of those uh, youth youth circles, I don't want to speak to the specific which ones, but the, those youth circles where almost within 20 to 40 minutes every single time some 15 to 17 year old we just met is opening up in 20 to 40 minutes, somebody we just met, I mean, it's pretty profound and, and amazing. Uh, to see that happen, and and there's there's for sure an art form that seems to come from starting with vulnerability and not expecting it in the other. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said. Yeah, you know this. Okay, this brings it back to the heart. To to me, I mean, even 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 um, in terms of attention and awareness, another way that I you know relate to my heart. And I've, I'm still cultivating this, um, and it, I'm better sometimes than others. But is to when I'm engaging somebody to have an element of my awareness on my heart. So I'm standing there. You know, I can I can do it right now. I can put myself into it. Right. I can bring my attention to my heart space, and then allow myself to speak from that place, or let or with from within that relationship mm -hmm. so there's some element of my bandwidth that's connecting there even though i'm using my mind or whatever to to come up with language and share and that like to me that's something i encourage people to practice you know or play around with if if it's so if you're so inclined really really basic seemingly basic um things that can have really profound cultivations over time in granting yourself access to more of your own capacity. Um, granting ourselves access to our own capacity. In this case, we're talking about 
um, the opposite of like trapped and uh, attached and that gripping, but this, it seems to expand outside of my body. And, and this is where, you know, there, there's bigger questions about where's that fine line between myself and others at that point where I, you know, I'm for sure that person in my partnership, uh, the woman I'm currently in relationship with where I'm feeling, you know, greatly a lot of some of her pains and sufferings. And I, and, you know, often can tell the difference between just my thought of her suffering versus that what feels like this heart space feeling. Mm. It's actually much stronger and is therefore understandable why there's these protective mechanisms, because if we just walked around feeling all these things mm -hmm. so much, and, you know, I wouldn't really wish that upon somebody that isn't choosing to do that with this open vulnerability and the challenges that come with that. It's kind of a different way of navigating to intentionally not create those mechanisms. And I definitely see the value of those mechanisms because great suffering can come from going around feeling all the pain and suffering of others. Yeah, yeah. Of course, the bound, boundless joy that comes from that is also part of that. Mm. Yes, you know, you you had you had uh, asked a, you we were we had our sort of little sheet where we were putting questions and there's a great question that this leads into which is uh, are there ways to navigate with an open heart and limit the defense mechanisms? Um, there's a couple that spring off from that, you know, of like why might this be considered an option or desire for me? You know, where does this desire come from? However, I think I, I, I'm going to take a stab at the. Uh, um, first part there and, and say that um, that they're connected, right? B because they're connected, navigating with an open heart and then limit the defense mechanism that they're, that what's impl almost implied in the question is greater intimacy with the mechanisms. So to say it simply, it's like get to know the defenses slowly, you know, slowly with ease at your own pace, or with a therapist, if you're working with one, slowly get to know those mechanisms um, intimately because that process of getting to know something intimately tends to mean that vulnerability is gonna be a part of what is what's happening in the exchange and in the deepening of the relationship and, and, vulner and therefore vulnerability. And so therefore, as a result of getting to know my own defenses better, I, I'm navigating my life with a more open heart and I'm, it's, but, and I'm providing something for myself in the process that is like, uh, I'm giving more room for blossoming for, for, for the, the Ivy to take over the wall, you know, for the, for the Ivy to start to cover the wall and maybe loosen mortar that is, uh, can be loosened. Yeah, especially, yeah, that makes sense for someone who's looking to feel open more and maybe recognizes some like, I don't like that defense or something like if there's some desire to um, kind of eat through some of those mechanisms that, that, that could have easily started young that don't service anymore as an adult or in our current relationship. And so kind of bringing awareness to those mechanisms, which uh, tends to bring some, some space for, for choice that seems to, uh, can over time bring this kind of 
more openness and more feeling. I think, I think there's an inherent desire for all of us to kind of feel that yet. Um, that's why I keep going back to the understanding about the protections of those mechanisms. Uh, I don't know if it's too, you know, I get, I kind of get question myself when I say things like uh, that there's this inherent desire to feel that openness. But yeah, I think it's seen in this desire to connect with others, this desire to be heard by others, this desire to uh, feel kind of connected in the moment in a way that feels more bountiful. So I, I think that's just kind of what the heart is there doing already. I yeah. think it's kind of it's so so as you mentioned things that support greater heart openings i like what you're saying about connecting to oh here you know identifying these mechanisms and and what would you say you would do or go from there i mean you said a little more already but is there maybe i mean i get a little bit mythopoetic when i when i you know, in the, what I've done with myself and, and if I'm, you know, the people that I might be um, supporting them to deepen with themselves is to, right, identify if, if a defense, or let me say it this way. A lot of times people, their desire is to not feel X, Y, and Z, right? I don't want to feel that. I don't want. And so what that means is that the point of focus is on what is not wanted. Yeah. Right, which to me kind of elicits that a certain binding energy, energy that's caught or trapped, because it's like the desire is actually being put on the thing that is not wanted. Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's kind of like a, a slow and easy and gentle, and there's no timeline. There's, it's just a, a shifting that to f- first. There's usually a what if, you know, there's there's contemplative or inquiries, which are what if that thing that you don't want at one time was your greatest ally was uh, was it was a mechanism and a defense mechanism to protect you from things that were happening what if it was what if it's birth so to speak that's what it came it was actually born out of love it was born to protect you and so that'll be like an initial con- contemplation for a person and if that if that has traction for them if they come back with oh my goodness like yes oh my man i see it you know right that to me now there's a now there is a there's a ratio like there's a different ratio because the ratio or relationship of I don't want is has this an, a bound antagonism whereas oh you son of a you were you were helping me all like you all you exist to help me are you kidding me right and there and there that kind of comes back to this like reunion grief you know or this reunion grieving in a way uh uh and and a reframing and then a re-experiencing and a deepening of intimacy self to self yeah yeah the you know that brings me to this title you came up with the brilliance of the heart's defense you know and the beauty in that and and again reframing it toward you know that was useful that was needed that was powerful that was supportive um, and reframing toward yeah reframing toward hmm. well i mean it's i don't know if it's even about reframing toward as much as 
again, we're, we're, I don't necessarily like to talk about parts, you know what I mean? Of the self, I'd rather say aspects or just a quality of relationship, because if, if there's something I don't want, if my desire is to not feel that's conflict, right? Conflict implies at least two things at odds. So there's an implicit relationship with self happening, an aspect of self, a quality, right? So yeah. I think of it as a reframing of the, the, the relating people by like the, that's what's being reframed because it's going from uh, like a big force that's pressing on me that I don't like to I'm going like, oh, you were an ally. And just, just, if you feel the difference of those words, it just, you can just feel into that. It's like, yeah, it's like I become more of an adult or I become more of the, a grown up. I become more uh, mature in what I've got access to when I'm going like, oh, now, now maybe I get curious, right? Because there's that initial, like, oh my God, you, you were serving me this whole time. Then there's, if that's authentic in a person, you can't fake that. Um, then there's going to be a natural curiosity. Like, oh, wait, I wonder how else. Right, oh wait, right. there was that time in eighth grade. You know, it's like there's this this curiosity will naturally occur, and it it will be fodder for a deepening of intimacy, and thus have a net result of a heart opening that doesn't need to be right. I don't think there needs to be a therapist there for that. And you know, I mean, for some people, of course, but uh, but I don't think there's any universal setup for that. Can the person can do that in the privacy of their own home over the course of months or years or weeks in oh. with their journal. Oh, yeah. You know, what I think you're talking about, uh, often I perceive this as an infusion of awareness that allows a loosening of that grip, including the grip on past experience, past, I mean, it's all happening in the now, because that's all there really is. But in this now moment, there can be this loosening of past grips even that are playing out now and that itself seems to bring more openness boundlessness of this heart um feeling this heart connection this heart heart perception i kind of sometimes call it yeah 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 it's like if if you want to loosen the grip and to use your language find genuine curiosity of the gripping itself it's like a i picture like a cat a very curious cat who's touching its nose sniffing and moving around the grip and touching and 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 then and now the grip feels as, instead of feeling like oh i hate this the grip feels this like wet cold kitty cat nose and whisker brushing on its grip and it's like oh <laughs> you know there's a the, the the conditions for loosening are much more um um are, are softened yeah which does create a vulnerability mm -hmm. and i can see how additional mechanisms would kick in at those moments that feeling of vulnerability and yet bringing this curiosity is is also that continual loosening yes and that to me that curiosity is an inborn innate i mean i think of curiosity it kind of has an emotion or an emotional state um that that it's like a force it's it's like a, it's part of the force of nature that we are that that curiosity so it's like if that if that when that once that curiosity loosens within a person or, or is let loose with within their life it's like 
I think a lot of therapeutic modalities can go away. Like that person becomes a, a navigator, they, they, their agency increases to have made contact with that genuine curiosity. I mean, I, I say to people sometimes curiosity is why I'm alive, you know, and why I'm not, you know, you know, you know, passed on from, you know, you know, being, having really bad habits in younger years of life. It was that curiosity, like, no, there's something else. There's gotta be a different way. There's gotta be a different example. There's gotta be something else to explore. And that was always, that was pretty much always running and, and alive in me, like a, a live wire. Yeah, that's great. I see that as an innate uh, capacity as well. It's, I, I know that sometimes there's some confusion when I talk about curiosity where uh, I hear somebody I'm talking to is, uh, you know, it's sometimes hard to separate the kind of curiosity that, that has agenda from this kind of curiosity you're talking about mm. uh, that, that is just naturally arising that, you know, child seeing the beach or anything new for the first time and how that, I like how you said that, that there's, that is more of a, an embodied feeling experience in and of itself. So it's kind of an openness itself to, it's uh, the curiosity is sort of, there's more, what is that more? But is that more, um, guess I'm lost in my own mind with this. I think this is a situation where it's better just as a felt experience. Than <laughs> yeah. It yeah. You know, as a concept. Yeah. That's funny. Cause what I, what I was, where I was, what I thought you might go on to say, but, um, was how, uh, when curiosity is running in that way, uh, play is, is, is often the sort of the net result of the relationship that that curiosity results in a playful way of engaging. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as we write, know very deeply, it's like, that's what we're doing as children until whatever, maybe forever, but until somebody says, stop, stop playing around. It's time to learn. And it's like, are you kidding me? I've, I've learned all my learning has been through playing. Yeah, I love that. I, I feel like we could totally spend a whole nother. Yeah, maybe that's another. Yeah, maybe that's our next conversation. Yeah. About play and that curiosity and that open ended experience of learning through play. Yeah. yeah, yeah let's let, let's bring it in. I mean, it feels like a good we're coming to a, um, a completion here. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel, I mean, just something that this is just being transparent with, with you, with people who are listening is that there's a gauge that I find in conversations. And it's like, when I, when they reach their conclusion, how do I feel inside myself? Do I feel more alive? Do I feel drained? Do I feel right? Just like turning my awareness back on myself. Uh, and, you know, unabashedly, I feel more enlivened right now. I feel, you know, I feel this kind of mischievous playfulness of, um, you know, through engaging with you the way that we do. And so I just, I mean, I feel grateful. Um, I trust that, you know, there's information here that's relevant for, for people in their listening and, and deepening their relationship with their own heart and their heartfulness. And um, mm. yeah, I'm just grateful to, to have taken the journey with you. Yeah, what a, what a pleasure. And it really is every time we talk and connect and 
I, I get this energetic uh, and expansiveness. I feel this expansiveness that comes from our engagement and connection. It, it feels like there's so many things that come up in relation to connecting with you that it, that it keeps opening doors and, and other ideas of, uh, to explore, but also it has a deep sense of connection and really speaks to this topic of this, this open heart or this heartfelt sense of, of feeling feeling connected and you just i don't know we've always kind of flowed in that way and just felt like some ease which there's trust that's built over time through that ease with you mm. in our relating and the ease of it and the expansiveness of it that builds the relation of trust there's an intimacy there's a, a connection there and some of the exciting parts is this idea of the the potentials the possibilities and just leaving those open-ended unattached open-ended kind of kind of feeling uh maybe a, a sense of freedom that comes from it and and the, the 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 beautiful heart feeling that i get in getting to connect with you so i'm very thankful that you prompted this and that we got to have this discussion and look forward to many more yeah yeah likewise so folks thanks for listening in um this is a real gift for i know for brandon and myself to to share this with you and to for me you know i i, I think it's true for brandon too but of having conversations where we don't know where we're going where there's a theme and we're going to bring our experience and and curiosity to it and really that's the the hope here is that as you listen that it's not about us being experts and you know it's it's about you finding your own expertise you finding your own genius so um join us next time if you will um till next time thank you so much <laughs>